You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 67. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are airing a panel discussion that I moderated at this year's International Wildlife Film Festival in Missoula, Montana. This was the third straight year that I attended this festival, and I was honored to be a member of the jury at the International Wildlife Film Festival this year. It was definitely interesting to get a behind-the-scenes perspective on this prestigious event. The International Wildlife Film Festival is the longest-running wildlife and conservation-focused film festival in the world, and I was honored to be responsible for passing judgment on the amazing films that were submitted to the festival this year. In addition to my duties as a festival judge, I also agreed to moderate one of the filmmaker panels at IWFF this year, and we had an amazing panel of filmmakers participating in our discussion. Of course, I had to record the conversation for an episode of this podcast, so today on the show you'll be listening to a filmmaker panel discussion from the 39th Annual International Wildlife Film Festival in Missoula, Montana. Our discussion was focused on the intersection between documentary storytelling and conservation or advocacy goals. We had four amazing filmmakers participating in the panel, all of whom had film screening at this year's event. John Betts and Taggart Siegel, representing the film Seed, The Untold Story, Roshan Patel, who directed the film Red Wolf Revival, and Eric Bendick, who made the film The Forgotten Coast. Let's jump in. So welcome, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming to this Thursday afternoon filmmaker panel. Uh, my name is Matt Podolsky. Um, I'm a wildlife filmmaker. Um, I'm also the host of a podcast series called Eyes on Conservation. So we're, we're actually doing something kind of neat here. I'm, I'm actually going to, uh, to air this conversation that we're having here um, as an episode of our podcast series uh, next week. So... The topic of this panel is um, we're basically going to be talking about the storytelling process. Um, and we're going to be talking about um, the way that uh, conservation issues and advocacy goals have an impact on the storytelling process for documentary filmmakers. On our panel, we have uh, John Betts um, and Taggart Siegel. Um, who are uh, producers of the film Seed, an untold story. Um, we have uh, Roshan Patel, um, who is the producer of the film Red Wolf Revival. Um, and we have Eric Bendick, um, who made The Forgotten Coast. So thanks to all you guys for, for being here. Thank you. I'm going to start off this conversation. Um, I, I just want to hear about where the initial ideas for your films came from. Um, you know, what inspired you to start thinking about making a film about the particular topic that you covered in, in the film? Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I guess I'm wondering specifically, like, was there a conservation or advocacy need that you identified that maybe inspired that? Um, or did it just seem like an interesting story that you wanted to tell? Um, and so maybe I'll start um, with you guys, John and, and Taggart. Hi, I'm 
Taggart Siegel with Seed. And um, our inspiration, or my inspiration, derived from the real Dirt on Farmer John that I made 10 years ago. And it's, I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's, it's really about a maverick farmer, somebody that, it, it's a, his life history, the rise and fall and resurrection of his family farm. And he's a very quirky character. And um, that film kind of opened the doorway to advocacy in my, my head. It was um, how to get out to farm groups and, and to start working with these organizations that are really amazing. And then five years later, John and I, John produced Queen of the Sun and What Are the Bees Telling Us? And that um, was a film about the honeybee collapse and crisis. And we knew, um, especially as we finished uh, filming and sort of the end of post-production that, wow, this is a completely an advocacy film. This is like, okay, which groups are out there that are uh, the crusaders of, of uh, pollinators? Uh, the Xerxes Foundation, Center for Food Safety, Organic Consumer Association, and we just started, the light bulbs started going off and like, oh God, they actually care about bees. You know, because you don't know um, when, when there's a new sort of like topic out there um, that's, that's come to s the mass circulation, like suddenly the masses are starting to be aware of some crisis that we're in. And the bee crisis hit very strong, like five, probably seven years ago, six years ago, and it hasn't stopped. It just keeps on going, and so there's all these groups. So Seed was born out of uh, Queen of the Sun and Real Dirt on Farmer John. We actually see this as a trilogy, and Queen of the Sun was like, wow, those pollinators actually contribute to making millions of seeds. And then it was like, well, what is a seed? But we didn't go, because Vandana Shiva talks about a seed and the, the, the beauty of a pollinator is that the pollinator could help make millions of seeds. And that's, a, that's something like, that is very generous. Nature is very generous. It gives and gives and gives and gives. And, um, and it was, I think I was at a doctor's appointment or something, and I saw National Geographic, and I picked it up, and, and there was Carrie Fowler from, uh, um, from the Svalbard uh, um, Seed Bank up in the Arctic Circle, and it said 96% of seed varieties have disappeared since 1901. And, and I was, what, seed variety? There's plenty of seeds out there. What's going on? Oh God, there's, they're going extinct? Like a lot of these varieties have gone extinct? And it was just completely like, I ran into the office and I say, hey John, um, well, there's, there's an idea that we could do. And it was, um, let's, let's, how about this film about seeds? Because it's like nobody knows about this, and it's like the it's it's kind of like it felt like when I made Queen uh, Real Dirt on Farmer John ten years ago. It was kind of like people didn't know about CSAs, community supported agriculture. Now it's just like oh, everybody knows about community supported agriculture. But it was kind of like um, just a big wake up. So that was it. That was like that that moment, just like in Queen of the Sun. It was like 
bees are dying out? I didn't know that. Okay, that's the film. Oh, seeds are dying out? Oh my God. They're like the, the thing that keeps us alive on earth. So that, that was what got, got us started. And three and a half years later, here we are. <laughs> so. That's great. Um, so, I, I mean, John, you know, maybe, I don't know. I mean, what, what, what was that process like for you? I mean, when, when Taggart came to you and sort of, you know, presented this idea, I mean, what, what, what was your initial thought? Uh, I distinctly remember after, you know, he had Xeroxed, we'd found a copy of it and <laughs> threw the Xerox on my desk and I distinctly remember kind of like pushing it like just aside for a second. Because yeah. it's like to think about making a new film is kind of intense. <laughs> and, and then I, I leave through it, I go home, I read it, read it again. And and st and start to go. Okay, like I, this is really important. This is really really important. This is like you know, 94% of our seed diversity was statistic and this infographic, and you're, it was just dramatic. You're like, what? We have that few varieties of celery and that few varieties of broccoli and tomatoes, and and you start to play it out in your head. But then you go, how is this going to be a film? Right? Seeds don't even move. <laughs> like honeybees are at least like, you either love or hate honeybees. You either think they're super cute and cuddly or you're like running away from them. But there's some strong reaction, but seeds are just like, ah, whatever. You know, like, and so it took a little bit to sort of mull that over and go, how could this be a feature film? Like, how could this be something that's entertaining, dramatic, has great characters and all this stuff? And, and to be honest, I don't think we really knew, except that really early on, when we were starting to do just some initial research to play with the idea, we ran across a coffee table book by Q um, Gardens in the UK. It's an incredible book, but it had these beautiful color, macro, like microscopic sometimes images of seeds, and they were like they were like uh, like architecture. They were like incredible sculptural designs. And Taggart and I both come from art backgrounds, and so we were just like, okay. I think we can work with this. Like, I think visually we can start to play with this idea. And so it was very much sort of an exploration, both of, we knew the issue was important. We actually had the things in the bag that are sometimes the most challenging things. We knew the issue was really important. It would totally play well in terms of drawing attention. And we knew that the advocacy groups were there and that the movement was sort of building really strongly. There was, it was an intersection of anti-GMO and sort of patenting conversations and farming. I mean, it's really like a nexus point of an incredible amount of, uh, uh, people power, but the, the real issue in the film was like, how do we create an entertaining story, which I'm sure we'll get into more in the conversation, but that was, that was like the challenge. Awesome, awesome. So, Roche, maybe you can sort of share a little bit about, you know, what that moment was like for you. I mean, how did you first find out about, um, you know, what's going on with the Red Wolves, uh, and, and, you know, what inspired you to say, like, yes, this is an issue that I need to make a film about? Sure. Um, so my process was a little bit different. Um, I, I guess living in Bozeman, I kind of heard so many conversations about wolves, their relationships with landowners, um, relationships to national parks and, and the Endangered Species Act. And in the back of my head, I, I grew up in Southern Virginia. Um, I had recalled the red wolf, which is a species that lives in North Carolina. Um, and the more I started talking to people about it, I realized that there just wasn't much attention on it. Um, and so initially when I went into it, I was looking at kind of a, a, 
a film about the history and reintroduction as a conservation effort because what a lot of people don't know it was the first time a predator had been reintroduced into the wild anywhere in the world. Um, so it was a really exciting conservation moment in the 80s when they put that back in the wild. It was extinct, um, basically captive bred, put them back in the wild, um, and was a model for the gray wolf reintroduction, California condors, um, and so many other species that we kind of now look to as conservation efforts. Um, and then about a week before we started filming, um, North, the state of North Carolina put out a document saying that they wanted them extinct in the wild and the program to shut down. So that Im immediately shifted our focus to be looking at why that document exists. The state agency put out something that is in direct conflict with um, the Endangered Species Act and federal protection. Um, and there's a lot of ways to go about it and I still hope that there are a lot of other ways that um, I, either I or other filmmakers can, can kind of bring attention to it. Um, but the way I decided to navigate it was looking at it as trying to navigate that conversation. Um, there had been forums that uh, were on the ground that were very polarized. It was landowners. Um, we heard things like, um, you know, the wolves are crossing borders like Mexicans are into the country. And so we were like, this is a really difficult statement to break down and actually have a conversation about. On the other hand, you had conservation groups that were at these meetings that were saying, get over it. They're here. You need to get over your inability to live with predators and your fear. And so in both cases, they were not conducive to um, looking at solutions, in, in my opinion. And so... The film is sort of a process of uh, trying to understand the variety of perspectives in a little bit deeper way that aren't just looking at the vocal people, but looking at what's the day-to-day -day life for a landowner and what do they care about. Um, and we decided to make it a short film, 20, it's 24 minutes, um, partly in an effort to create community screenings that could prime an immediate conversation. So. The screening we did yesterday was actually the first time we'd done a screening without a full panel afterwards, but normally we've done screenings that have included landowners, Fish and Wildlife Service, who had been totally silent on the issue, but apparently were worried about the film, so they sent representatives to be able to speak to what they're doing, um, some of the conservation groups. Um, and so the screenings turned into this two-hour-long event that has the screen, or has the film screen, um, a brief conversation with some of the panelists and their perspectives, and then a Q&A, which included several of the landowners that had been vocal, um, and try to create a more um, palatable conversation that could help people tease apart where the program should go. So if Fish and Wildlife is in attendance, maybe identify other people to work with and understand a human dimension component. Um, so it didn't start off with it being quite an active conversation, but ended up going that route because it felt um, a little bit more necessary. And to give a little bit more context, there's, um, when we finished the film in November, there, the estimate was 50 to 75 wolves left in the world, um, mm -hmm. in the wild, in this one section of North Carolina. And the new estimate that was put out a couple weeks ago was 45 to 60. So there's very little time left and didn't feel like we, we had much time to wait to, to start that conversation. So. Neat, yeah. I mean, so uh, that's that's an example of, you know, what sounds like 
you know, the actual structure of your story and your method of storytelling was like heavily influenced by this immediate conservation uh, threat to the species that you were facing, which is super interesting, and we'll, we'll delve more into that as we continue the conversation. Um, but uh, Eric, I want to hear from you. I mean, your film, The Forgotten Coast, um, is is definitely different in that it's, I mean, it's an adventure story, right? And obviously, you're trying to, you know, bring to light conservation issues through the sort of telling of. Uh, uh, this this trip that you portray in the film, but I'm curious to hear you know where the idea for this adventure came from, um, and you know what sort of conservation uh, or advocacy ideas you know you were thinking you could maybe address through the telling of this. For sure, um, you know it, it's interesting to to really go to the root of what the motivations uh, for this film really were. Um, I started visiting my grandparents in the Florida Keys when I was two years old. And um, they lived on Big Pine Key, and um, here they were in a, in a part of Florida that is not Disney World, is not Miami Beach, and mm -hmm. their backyard was a salt flat. And we would go out, my grandfather was an avid fisherman, and we would go out every day, and, and we were, in the wild, you know, once you once you leave the the immediate island, um, you know, you're you're kind of feel like you're in a, a wilderness. And so, you know, for the first um, 10, 15 years that we would visit, that was their wilderness. Their backyard was this kind of wilderness. And I, I only, as I got older, started to realize that um, most people don't. Uh, don't quite understand that side of Florida. Um, they don't understand that side of um, the American South. Um, there's a huge gap in our knowledge about how wild some of these places are and that, in fact, they are the most biodiverse parts of our country, um, and yet they're very fragile, and um, they have so much richness and presence, and so that was kind of like the seed was planted there. And then um, my dad works in conservation. So, you know, I started to realize more um, how deep this story was, what, you know, what characters lived down there, like the Florida black bear and Florida panther and, you know, how rich this area was. Um, and then to get to the your question kind of about the adventure mode, um, when I started making films, uh, out here in Montana, um, the first several films I made were um, kind of an adventure stories in and around the Yellowstone area. And then we started working further afield. Um, these were for Nat Geo in a series called America of the Wild. Mm -hmm. And we did some work in Maine. We did some work in um, the Great Bear Rainforest. I mean, some of the most iconic places in North America. and. Um, and yet there still was this lack, uh, and there still was this kind of um, idea that, you know, the preconceived idea of Florida that, that many of us grew up with. Um, so I really wanted to figure out a way to, to tell um, an adventure story, um, and, and essentially that was the vehicle that I thought we could tell uh, these compelling conservation stories would come organically out of it if people just got the chance to 
go into what was, I think, is still seen as sort of an intimidating southern swamp wild environment, um, those stories, those conservation stories would organically come out. Um, so that was sort of um, the background. And then uh, I found this team that was preparing uh, to go on this trek from the Everglades to the Alabama border. And their whole purpose of this trek was essentially to showcase the wild, uh, unseen side of Florida and to do so in a way that, um, you know, potentially could carve out a space, a protected space through the entire state uh, that would allow those same animals to migrate and, uh, you know, essentially to open people's eyes to the opportunity that still is there in Florida. Um, and so it, it didn't take a lot of convincing for me to sign on to a project like that because I thought, you know, this is a, this is a rare opportunity. So that's how it happened. Very cool. Um, yeah, and I, I definitely see what you're talking about. I mean, there's when I think of Florida, that's that's not the image that pops into my head. You know, <laughs> right. right. So uh, very neat to see that and get those visuals. So I, I want to. The next thing I want to ask you guys is about. Um, target audience. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, how much thought you guys put into, uh, you know, who, who you're really trying to reach with this uh, film and the story that you were uh, starting to tell. Um, and thinking about that early stage in pre-production, maybe before you even started shooting anything at all, um, you know, were you thinking about, like, who that ideal target audience is? Like, who is it out there that has the greatest potential to, to have an impact and to sort of follow through on, you know, this, uh, this sort of goal that you're trying to achieve with your, with your story? Yeah, I think um, really early on, um, definitely before we started any filming, it was really clear that we were um, interested in making a film that would be for... Um, a fairly mainstream audience, obviously, you know, those who would come and at least see a documentary, but, but beyond that, a very mainstream audience in the sense that we want to, we want to present the issue in a very accessible way and, you know, to be entertaining, to be, um, to be also like conveying the information in a ground up way versus, um, sort of in, in extreme detail. As, as sort of a jumping off point for somebody who, you know, may be aware of a, a side of the issue. So they might have heard it, you know, of course, you know, most people now have heard and know a little bit about GMOs, you know, so they might come in from that angle. Or they might be a health food person and they might come in from that angle, but they still have no idea about the loss of seed diversity. And they also have no idea about um, seed banks and the efforts that are being done to actually preserve and conserve diversity that are both um, cultural and, um, you know, very much a part of who people are and that there's this uh, 12,000 year history that brought us the food that we have now. So, so in that sense, we knew that this was sort of a, the seed crisis was a nascent issue to the public and that our film will be one of, of you know, the sort of news media elements that's going to help bring this to people for the first time. And when, and when you're dealing with that kind of issue, then of course you know, uh, well, we gotta, we gotta find those characters who 
are going to be fun to watch, who are going to be sort of infectious in their enthusiasm and their passion, because we knew that also our, our main um, goal and outreach was to motivate and inspire people. It was sort of a hearts and minds film. It's like we need to move people to actually care about seeds. Um, in the same way that in Queen of the Sun we felt we had to do that to get people to care about honeybees. It was like go beyond the step of being scared of killer bees to actually seeing a need to care about um, this creature. And in this case, for a need to care about seeds, which are not a creature, but they're very much alive. And the more, uh, and that was a real big purpose for us in making this film was how do we bring something that's inanimate, that's, that's absolutely beautiful and sort of give it a pulse and a, a little bit of a personality in the sense that, um, you can, you can resonate with, uh, the cultures who created the food that we have, you know, the the Native American peoples from Latin America that brought corn and like literally uh, were part of domesticating corn from a wild crop to the corn cobs we have, you know, to the corn ears we have now that have massive diversity, and then to also see how we we took that diversity and did our classic industrial complex thinking and narrowed it down to very little and where we're at now, which is this extreme need to get it back. So our target audience was very much looking at, um, looking at the mainstream and how you motivate somebody who's really not caring at all until they walk in that theater because their friend decided that they should come see this film with them or because they thought it looked interesting from the trailer or it was funny or something. And where do you start? You have to start right at the very beginning with them. You have to get them to laugh and to get you know, in connected with people. And I think that was the big thing for us is unlike, you know, there are, um, especially with wildlife films, you can connect with animals in a, in a very big way, but we knew that with seed, you're gonna have to connect with people first and foremost as a channel to bring you in to the world of seeds. We, we did a lot of campaigning while we we're making the film and even jumped into, kicked, yeah, jumped into Facebook and we were absolutely shocked that people started um, liking us. And now we're close to 23,000 people liking Seed. And we just came out with the film a month ago. So that was something was just like, okay, something's different about this film. Queen of the Sun now has 29,000, almost 30,000 people, but that was started after the film was finished and we got this slow, consistent build over the last five years. CETA was just like, whoa, where'd that come from? And it's, it's just a great feeling when people like start sharing things. And so we're all about the sharing. We're all about like how seeds get out there in the world is like, let's share it. And so that, that's kind of the model we're working at. Awesome. Well, you know, you, you, you touched, Taggart, on, on something that I think is, is really important, um, which is this idea that you start promoting your film right from the beginning, right? And you talked about how, you know, with your previous film, Queen of the Sun, um, you know, you sort of waited until you had that final product before you started mm -hmm. really pushing it on social media and all these other channels mm -hmm. um, and really reaching out to people. Um, and, you know, w w how stark that difference is when you start that mm -hmm. process right at the beginning and continue it throughout production and throughout post-production. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think it's a really important point to make and I think that that's, 
that's an experience that that I went through as well mm -hmm. as a filmmaker. You know, my first film, I, I had the same attitude, like, oh, I'm afraid to release any of my best content, you know, until the film is totally complete. Um, didn't really do any promotion to it until I had a finished product, um, and and the film suffered. Um, from that, mm -hmm. I think, um, and, and I learned that lesson. And on my next mm -hmm. film, you know, the very first thing that we did was, you know, start promoting it and start telling the story um, in whatever way we were able to, mm -hmm. um, and sharing that footage and sharing little snippets of that, mm -hmm. you know, as we went through the process. Mm -hmm. So, Roche, I, I, you know, your your film, as far getting back to the sort of target audience question, um, I mean, your your film has. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it does have um, a broader appeal, but at the same time, you know, it, it sounds like what you were saying before that you know you were very sort of targeted in your uh, your approach towards telling the story, right? Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about like you know what that thought process was like for you. You know, who 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 did you have a specific group of people in mind when you um, were putting that film together? Um, sure. So, yeah, like you said, I th we started with a very specific idea of, of where this film could go, and, and that sort of was developing as we were in production, which is not the ideal time to be figuring that out. But um, as that news had come in that North Carolina wanted to declare them extinct, um, we knew we needed to shift um, focus to, to be relevant immediately. And um, so we... we wanted to target North Carolina um, as an audience and sort of expanded from there. So we looked at um, various groups in North Carolina that might be willing to screen it when we're done, host these screenings, museums, facilities that had captive uh, Red Wolves, community theaters in the area where Red Wolves lives that might be willing to um, host screenings. Uh, we went to... Um, restaurants in some of the small towns where it's basically that's the place they all go to after church to hang out and that's the social venue in some of these small towns so we would screen it there and so we kind of kept that in mind moving forward that's where we wanted that's those communities were our target audiences and from we hope that it has a broader appeal but we didn't want that broader appeal to lose uh, some of the detail and nuance that we felt they wanted in the film um, in order to figure out uh, how to move forward. And so, as I mentioned, it's the film is kind of a primer to a conversation. Um, and so um, we've partnered with like the AZA, for example, the Association of Zeus and Aquariums, and they're screening it at every facility where they have red wolves because we're finding that they aren't allowed to talk about political issues, mm -hmm. but they can present a film that addresses it and then have their own educational component afterwards. So I think there is a broader use for it and a broader appeal, um, but we didn't want to um, sort of summarize perspectives um, that might turn a North Carolina residents off from it thinking they just skimmed the surface and they're not really interested in, in where this conversation's going. Basically, even when we do these screenings, we've been doing these impact surveys um, so we've presented the film in ways that are, you know, come watch this film that's relevant to this region. Um, didn't tell people what the film was about, did pre-post surveys. Um, we basically hired an independent researcher to do that so that we weren't 
immediately influencing it by having the filmmakers there. Um, and we did the same with the trailer as well to try to figure out what types of content was relevant to the conversations they wanted to have. And so I probably wouldn't use a trailer like this to get a large appeal. I think it's a little long. I think there's some nuance in terms of like federal law that's kind of talked about in there. But for us, we wanted that conversation to come out of the film screenings. And so um, we tried to target our audience in that way um, and, and keep it specific to the, um, some of the, the rules that really determined how people felt about wolves. Um, and the next, the only other thing that I wanted to say in connection to the AZA stuff is that we've also um, employed this film in universities um, in the area and kind of use it as a case study. Um, so I think there's like a different purpose for our film than, than where we thought it was going to go initially, but I think it's in a place where we're pretty happy that it's, it's, it's finding a, a use to steer a conversation that is ongoing. Um, every week or so, the story seems to be changing, and so we didn't want to limit ourselves to say this is a solution and then have it be irrelevant in a week. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, it, it, I think you brought up this really important point, which I think is that, you know, obviously, every filmmaker wants their film to have as broad of an appeal as possible. You know, all of us want as many people as possible to see this, this work of art that, that, that we've created. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's really important to keep in mind what that end goal is, you know? And, you know, for your film, I mean, you identified um, this, you know, sort of the, the group of people that have the greatest potential to have an impact on the outcome of the issue itself, right? Um, and you targeted your film towards them um, with this idea that, like, if I can just reach these people, then we really have the ability to have a, a, a measurable impact on this. Um, whereas, you know, maybe if you'd made a film that, that you know, had this broader appeal, um, it wouldn't have resonated the same way with the people who really matter. Um, so it's, it's really neat to hear about, like, you know, the work that you've done and, and the research involved um, in sort of tailoring this film to that target group is really neat. Um, so Eric, I mean, I, I, it, it seems to me like your film is definitely, you know, uh, tailored towards a, a, a pretty broad audience. I mean, your goal, it sounds like, was just to, you know, sort of show people, you know, that there are these amazing places in Florida and like, hey, get out there and explore this, um, but also get involved in conservation. Um, but, you know, it seems like a story that the broader the, you know, the more people you get who get eyes on that, the better, right? Um, but I, I am wondering, you know, what your, you know, what you were thinking about um, distribution early on. You know, and what kind of planning did you do to sort of get that story out there um, in the early stages of uh, sort of developing this story? Um, oh, well, I think it's a great cross section here um, because we've really got um, sort of a, whole, a full spectrum, it feels like, between um, character driven, um, curiosity driven, you know, uh, science. Uh, strong science component to a, uh, a film that takes a uh, like you know very targeted look at you know this uh, this one central issue and then poses it as kind of a, a democratic principle you know what what are we going to do with this issue that is our issue and then um, my 
my film uh, is somewhere somewhere else in a in a certain genre in that we really wanted it to be a kind of big tent film where um, you know where where the conservation issues underlying were going to come out uh, we're going to emerge kind of from the weeds from the actual story and the journey um, and and instead of uh, going out there with sort of an agenda um, that was, uh, y you know, really uh, sort of stood on its own. We wanted the story to to bring that kind of illuminate the issues w within itself, and um, and I think those are all really good models, and they just speak differently. And I think one of our goals to to speak directly about distribution was for a PBS audience, um, you know, advocacy films are not, uh, they, they don't work. Um, they're too biased and, and there's strong reasons that the independent film world supports those films and they're very important. Um, but for PBS, you know, you, you need also the, the sense of, um, this is uh, something produced for everyone. Um, and so we, we actually used that, we, we, we embraced that, and we thought we could tell the story from this kind of um, come along for the adventure and lead, leading with curiosity and leading with kind of a, a journey that would bring in outdoorsmen and sportsmen who may not share the same conservation values as far as what they think is best for public land or predators or all these other things, but at least they could form a baseline that says, uh, we appreciate wildlife and we appreciate wildlife in a part of the world where wildlife is very under pressure. Um, and that to us was kind of the widest scope we could um, set out with and also it, it it felt like a very effective way to bring in um, younger people. Um, you know, we had a, a really good response from families who've who've seen the film, or you know, mixed age groups and and kids. You know, they just they love the adventure, um, and they can see themselves walking through the swamp. You know, and it's that place of curiosity. I felt that uh, the best way that you were going to experience this journey as an animal would is to literally um, the, the natural curiosity we have for what for how animals move and and um, the way that they move and the world that they inhabit um, really w this perspective of the bear and just like literally what that walking that path and the bear walking that path and them walking that path. And I feel like that's, from a storytelling point of view, it, it sort of felt contagious, like for anyone watching that to wonder and just to just to have that natural inquiry. So that's where it felt like, okay, we, we can make this a broad, a broadly appealing idea. So uh, that, that kind of was our thought as far as how to frame it. Yeah, and it's, it's certainly neat to, you know, like you said, to get that perspective. I mean, yeah, you feel like you're sort of traveling along the same path as the bear. I mean, it, and it, it, it puts you in the shoes of that animal in a different sort of way and allows you to um, to relate to that other species in, in a different kind of way. Um, you know, 
as documentary filmmakers, you know, we all know that uh, no matter how well you plan for a shoot, things change, you know? Um, and so I'm curious, you know, to hear from your perspective, you know, because this is sort of an adventure film, like I'm sure that that happened over and over again, you know, on, on this adventure of things you didn't expect to happen. And, um, you know, you have to be able to sort of think quickly and be on your feet as far as how to like, oh, what do I have to capture? Like what's happening? Like, is this going to be important for my story? Something happening that you didn't anticipate. So I'm wondering if anything like that happened and like maybe you can sort of share how unexpected occurrences on this trip influenced and played into your story. Sure. Uh, you know, I think the, the biggest challenge with a 70-day uh, expedition like this is, um, well, for one, you know, filming wildlife um, opportunistically when you still have to move um, sometimes 20 miles of hiking in a single day, I mean, is is sort of absurd. I mean, the, those things don't don't naturally overlap because you can't be quiet. You know, there's all those technical aspects of it. Um, so what what we did was we we kind of in, ahead of time had to you know really focus our attention on certain um, kind of ambassador animals like the black bear. Know that we wanted those. Um, and then we shot some of this before the expedition started. And then, you know, actually we could go back still and flesh out more of the natural history um, for certain scenes. Um, but in the end, for this particular version of the film, it's um, there was so much to fit in, in terms of that journey, that, uh, that it was, you know, we ended up with like a hundred minute rough cut. Um, and so it was a real arduous process, cutting that down, figuring out where things got slow, where the the energy came up and down. But the one good thing I, I will say about expedition filmmaking is that um, there is always an action. You know, there's always something driving and whether somebody gets lost that day or whether, um, you know, the manatees show up for the migration or you know something is constantly happening and I think from my point of view it's a, it's a wonderfully open way to film because you can be very opportunistic as you go and just kind of say okay this is happening we're gonna we're gonna go for this you know we might not get the complete picture we need we might have to go back or we might have to um, later down the line think about how we can piece things together but uh but it is a very refreshing way to film um and then knowing also in, in your back pocket that you're going to have way more content than you can use so if you miss things or if if things are imperfect you know it it also feels like okay we you know we've just got to do the best we can at any given moment um, so for, for certain things, uh, that slipped through the cracks, it was kind of more about, you know, having the sustaining, um, the crew and everyone, everyone's morale for 70 days. That was probably the biggest challenge. Right. Yeah. 
Neat. So, um, I mean, the other two films here that we're talking about here, Seed and Red Wolf Revival, um, they're both like issue films, right? I mean, it's it's not the same type of type of approach, but you're still dealing with the same issue of the fact that things are changing while you're in production, while you're in post, um, and you have to adapt to that on the fly. So. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be good to hear from from you guys as well. It's like, you know, was there anything that anything that dramatic that changed? You know, whether it's like current events, like you know, some some incident happening that all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, we have to cover this. This has to be a part of the story. Um, I mean, anything like that that sort of forced you to sort of shift the way you think about the story um, while you were in the process of creating the film. Well. It's an, it's an interesting thing you bring up because when you know one of the one of the great things we talked about earlier about being sort of public in your creation of the film is is all this sort of extra attention which can be really good but I also totally get why filmmakers go dark mode to make their films because it's also like a pretty huge distraction and um, and, and it has a lot of payoffs in the end, but it's like I'm making a film and I'm also sort of like running an outreach campaign at the same time if you do it that way. Mm -hmm. You're running an outreach campaign before you even know what your film exactly is gonna turn out to be. And you may have ideas and you know, sometimes, like you said, your film turns out to be very according to plan and sometimes your first grant proposal, you look at it and you go, this, this is like nothing like my film. Um, and so I, one of the things that happened to us was a lot of things because this movement is the food movements you know matured over the last 40 years to a very savvy very sort of like social media driven movement and so when they were aware of the film a lot of things came to us you have to do this you have to cover this you know? and so you're sort of fielding because you don't want to totally shut that off because you don't know maybe there is something really important that's about to happen but at the same time you can't just like be like hiring cameramen to go off and shoot random things all over the world as, as even though in the moment sometimes they seem really important, right? Like some big protest seems like, man, it might be really important to have this big protest. And then later you go, why did we shoot all these protests? We was like 30 seconds, you know? And it was all from one we shot. Like, you know what I mean? It was like, what? Like, that was ridiculous. Um, so I think from our point of view, it was a totally different style of filmmaking. Instead of like being, I'm actually like, wow, I want to go make a 70-day expedition, <laughs> expedition film because like you shoot for 70 days and you're kind of like done with the core of the film. But we had like this three and a half year process of making a fairly global film with many characters and cast a very broad net. But in the editing process, it was like, it was pretty painful because we had to cut out a lot of like really amazing stories. And one in particular was like, we, f we followed the GMO labeling um, battle in Oregon because we're in Oregon. It was a fairly accessible, straightforward thing to film. But it was also like, it really depended on the outcome whether we wanted to put it in the film or not. Because, you know, you don't want to like deflate an audience for a battle that you lose unless that's part of your narrative arc and you can sort of pull out of that. And at the same time, if you win, it's like it could be really rah rah, but it also could sort of like disappear very quickly and not ultimately be that much. And so it was interesting, like going through this whole process of rallying and, and following a pr certain political movement you think is going to be really important. And then in the whole scheme of things, realizing it's not, it, it actually might really date the film to include something that, that, that isn't um, as substantial as like the human story and the character story arc of the film. And, um, you know, there, there are characters that we follow that are just gems. I mean, just perfect gems. And we had to cut them. 
And the reason you have to cut them because you have to make a story. You have to create a, a you don't have to, you can do whatever you want, but maybe <laughs> somebody won't see it. But that three, that three act model, is this like Aristotle, it's, it works. I mean, it really does give you sort of a structure. And there's a reason why you watch most fiction films or, or some documentaries where there's only just a few characters and you really get involved with them. These character-driven films, um, especially like with Queen of the Sun, we, we, you know, I went from one character, Real Dirt on Farmer John, to Queen of the Sun that had, um, I would say, seven characters or six characters to see the untold story with 50 characters because we went out there and filmed every great seed keeper out there or every march, every this, every that, and, and it became our Achilles heel. It was just like, no, God, we can't give that person up. We've been having personal conversations. We've already said they're in the film. And then you, you get feedback from people and you're like, you know, I, I think you should cut that person up. And they're, they're not even attached, so they could just say it. And we're like, we're very attached. And, and so we had to do that detaching, um, especially from a foundation that gave us money. But they, they said, well, you know, I think if you'd like some feedback, we'd like to give it to you. And that was the wake-up call. It was just like, you're right, you're right, okay. Okay, drop... 15 characters, now we're down to the core, and build them much more. So we had to go back to the footage, build those characters a lot more, create a, a, a film that is very traditional in a certain way with the format, because we're trying to break all those formats. We're tra trying to break the traditional filmmaking method where the story is the next character that carries that issue to the final outcome of the whole film. And you got so many people that could do those, those they're, they're like brilliant on that moment or on that issue. And the film feels very cohesive, but we don't know that character. We haven't built them, we haven't developed them, and they suddenly come in the third act and like somebody completely new. And so we had to kind of like give a lot of that up and start over, not over again. We were able to quickly go back into it and reshape it, but the reshaping is when we felt like we finally matured and we weren't like forcing it to be a certain way. It needed to be a certain way and it was kind of like we just had to hear it, listen to it, let the film speak to us and um, you know, not not try to force things. And that's when the film, I feel like, um, got a lot better and, and the feedback got really positive. So, and that's always painful. As you know, as filmmakers, you're like, I don't want to listen to somebody talk about my film, like get feedback, but I always know I have to do it. And then I usually, it's like going to therapy. I usually appreciate it afterwards. Like, oh, I just went through it. I just had to bring up that subject I didn't want to talk about. And, and, and it's, you get breakthroughs. And then the breakthroughs are hopefully what makes a better film. Because ultimately for us, and it, I'm thinking of making films in a different way in the future, but ultimately, 
we're, we want to get to the, uh, the the most people we possibly can, and to keep it keep keep the movement going. So, so Roche, you, you've already talked about you know this really like pretty dramatic incident that that happens you know right before you started actually shooting for um, Red Wolf Revival. Um, maybe you can just elaborate that on a little bit and like talk about. Um, you know, what was your plan for the film before this happened? Um, and, you know, what specifically did you decide to change as a direct result of that happening? Sure. Um, so actually before um, we started filming, there was actually a fairly positive story of, um, you know, people... Th this program had been on the ground for about, I guess this year it'll be 30 years. Um, and so it's been this quiet story, which in conservation is actually successful, that it isn't you know, in the news all the time, that it was just something people were living with. Um, and so in the last year or so, it had become more complicated. Um, and that had to do more so with coyotes moving into the area mm -hmm. and people's conflicts with coyotes. And red wolves happened to look like coyotes, so that was problematic. People were accidentally shooting red wolves. Um, so it became very contentious in the middle of our research and trying to put together the story. Um, so we kind of had a feeling that it was going to shift to be more about the controversy by the time we actually got on the ground filming. Um, but there was still this attitude that we had um, sort of seen that was, well, let's kind of wait and see. It wasn't um, as contentious as that document then created this this option that you could get rid of red wolves. And then that shifted the direction of a lot of our characters that we had talked to about what they wanted the program to be and how they wanted it to go. Um, and so ultimately we were entering a conversation unlike, um, I guess, a couple of the, the other examples on, on this panel where people knew the issue really well and that for our target audience. And so we were trying to depolarize their perspectives, but also come into it with being open to what their perspectives were. So, you know, we were suddenly entering this arena where what we had understood about the issue was suddenly the least knowledgeable perspective that that could could be navigating this conversation. Um, and we had to be open to that. And so um, that was challenging to, um, you know, in our film, it's not, we're not spending as much time introducing the issue because we're trying to show it to people who feel like they know the issue. So, okay, so then how do we set it up in a way that they might be willing to listen to other perspectives? Um, and so that's, I think just that shift in target audience as soon as that document had come out really designed the, the way we wanted to approach our storytelling and rather than making it for a broader audience that might be saying, hey, here's this really cool conservation story that farmers were actually really happy about. Um, you know, people were talking about the impact on nutrient population, reduce, like the red wolves had reduced that, and deer populations were better. So it wasn't an issue of people needing the quote-unquote right information. It was now, um, you know, how do, how do we navigate the option that you can remove an endangered species? Um, which hadn't been seen until that document was released. I mean, I imagine there were inklings of that before so that it guided that document, but it wasn't a prevalent uh, concept. Um, so yeah, I think once we had identified that target audience, that shifted it from a broader audience to a specific 
conversation with people who had a lot of information about what road rules were. That you know sort of brings up this this point that we keep coming back to of you know developing these partnerships early on and and then utilizing those partnerships once you reach your distribution stage, right? I mean, um, it's not just about the benefits you get initially and throughout production, but I mean, those connections help so much when you reach distribution, you're trying to get people to show up at screenings. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really important point to make. It sounds like all of you guys, you know, um, were really focused on establishing uh, partnerships with like-minded organizations, which you have then utilized throughout the process, um, but those partnerships become especially important during the distribution stage, for sure. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks all you guys for coming out and um, listening to this amazing panel. And thanks to you guys for participating. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all right, that was our conversation with filmmakers John Betts and Taggart Siegel, who made the film Seed, The Untold Story, Roshan Patel, who made the film Red Wolf Revival, and Eric Bendick, who made The Forgotten Coast. As was brought up in the discussion, it was really amazing to have such a diverse array of films represented on this panel. Red Wolf Revival represents one extreme end of the spectrum as a film that was highly targeted and focused on reaching a very select group of individuals with its important message, while The Forgotten Coast and Seed were geared more towards a general audience. It's certainly neat to hear about these very different approaches and how the filmmakers adjusted their stories based upon these target groups that they identified. So at the actual panel discussion, we were able to screen the trailers for all three of these amazing films, and we've embedded these film trailers on the show notes page for this episode. So if you want to get the complete experience, you'll have to head on over to the show notes page, which you can find at wildlensinc.org EOC67. That's wildlensinc.org EOC67. We'll also have links to all three of these film projects' homepages so that you can learn more about the projects and the filmmakers. So be sure to check out that show notes page. I'll also include a plea here to check out our podcast series on iTunes and leave us an honest rating and review. This really helps new people discover the show and in turn learn more about important conservation issues. So search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store and uh, give us a rating and review if you have a free moment. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.